I've watched the video of Jonathan. I was completely caught off guard when you guys yelled his name and you yelled it again and you yelled it again and then he came outside and just like this company of men with you in the middle with just that big daddy smile and just the message of you are welcome. You are welcome mm. here. Like it is it is about you. And we are not ashamed to let this be about you. And and it's all about you being a part of God's heart and God's story and God's life. And I guess, Paul, there's just something in you guys shouting that it just felt so true. And like the look on his face of like anxious delight with his bags. Like, I know this is good. And I've had brothers that have told me about it. And yet... You could have never told me how good this is. Like not a thousand stories could compare to what it feels like to hear my name like echo and echo. Friends, welcome back to the first episode of the Become Good Soil podcast here in 2019. I'm really excited to bring you a conversation with mentor and ally Paul Ryan. That first bit of content we listened to was a reflection on a video that Paul had shared with me. Paul's a father of six children, five of which are sons, and one of his sons recently went through part of his rite of passage and his initiation, and the way Paul led that experience was a fellowship of men to stand outside of their home and yell out their son's name from the top of their lungs and to yell and scream his name so that he would be called out. And he came to the door with utter delight to peer on this fellowship of men, both uh, brothers and his father and his father's fellowship to call him out and up and into a great adventure. And I wanted to start with that reflection on that video because it's very moving um, and countercultural in so many ways to what we think of with male initiation in this day and age. So much of initiation is accidental at best. So much of it takes place in the context of self-initiation, where largely it's out of an orphaned posture to figure out life on your own terms. And a lot of it, sadly, is peer initiation, where it's really a group of orphans trying to find their way without being led, without being fathered, without the opportunity to respond to something greater at work in their lives. And sadly, what has happened in much of it in the baby boomer generation, one of the sad fruits of that generation, though there were many positive things, one of the sad outcomes was you had a culture of working fathers, a culture of fathers that were largely checked out emotionally and without affection or physical intimacy, checked out verbally without lots of words of communication with their young and growing sons. 
but they were at work, largely outsourced from the home, and they put their time in and, and in a lot of ways kind of became a paycheck. And out of a good heart, they provided what they thought what was needed, and that was physical provision. But what lacked was the intimacy and the father-centered initiation. And sadly, what you had was a culture of moms that kind of orchestrated the kids' activities. So, so many of the activities were just child-centered, where the kids were the center of the focus and the moms graciously and kindly, um, you know, would shuttle kids around neighborhoods and activities. But largely, initiation was happenstance. It was accidental. It was self-centered or peer-centered. And what Paul has modeled in his life with his five sons is a father-centered initiation. Paul is a man who has been deeply transformed. I met Paul years ago and have had the privilege to walk with him for over a decade. And, you know, those awards that they give out for senior yearbooks, one of the awards I wish I could give out sometimes is most transformed. And if I were to give Paul Ryan with a tear in my eye, I would say he is one of the most transformed human beings and fathers I've met in today's day and age. Paul serves as a director for LL Ministries for the uh, campus and property in Australia, outside of Sydney. LL is a healing ministry over 20 countries, which started in the UK and has reached out beyond its borders. But Paul runs the center in Australia, and he's served uh, courageously and faithfully in our Become Good Soil intensives in Australia, our Wild Heart Boot Camps in Australia. And he's modeled for me a lot of what it looks like to receive the Father Heart of God and from that reservoir be able in pieces and parts to make it available to our sons and to shepherd the path and the process of masculine initiation. So I want to pick up with a conversation. This first part will be Paul reflecting uh, mostly on his story, because his story, um, as you will quickly hear, is not one of being fathered uh, profoundly in his youth. And so the beauty of his story is it brims with hope. It brims with hope because he's a man who later in his life chose to turn and risk everything, choosing to believe that perhaps God is a good father and perhaps there is a path of initiation yet available to every man at every age. And so let's pick up with a rich conversation between Paul Ryan and myself as we dive into masculine initiation. A lot of guys can see that kind of video clip and they it, it impacts them powerfully, but they cannot articulate what you just articulated, which obviously is evidence of your journey, but they know there's something powerful in it that Father wants to teach them through it. So yeah, great sharing. I'm just noticing some of your terms there, self-initiation, peer initiation. Gosh, that just summarizes a self-made man, doesn't it? Oh, really? it does. It really does. Yes. Yes. Profoundly. <laughs> it would bless me to just understand the context of your story so that I can better understand what you mean by initiation, how you've been led with your five sons through initiation. And let's start with some of your story. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, 
when you hear some of my story uh, in a snapshot, you'll get a picture of why that calling away from mother was so important. And uh, I loved your comment about getting ferried around by all the mothers while the fathers are absent and away. You know, uh, for me, uh, both my mother and my father uh, were alcoholics and they fell pregnant with me. So I was conceived and born out of wedlock and really it was a bit of a shotgun marriage. My father uh, and mother were both Catholic and they felt it was right to go ahead and get married. There's also some family pressure to do that, to legitimize things. None of which of this I was told, by the way. I had to find out I was actually illegitimate. Mind you, my heart was already telling me that well into my teens. But was the reality it really, is, Paul? Wow. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, but spiritually I was, you know. I mean, there's even a scripture in Deuteronomy 23, verse 2, that talks about the curse of illegitimacy for those who are born outside of wedlock, you know. And But, man, I knew it. I didn't need to read a scripture to know that. Mm. Uh, my father's absence with the, the pressures he was under was a travelling salesman. The tension in the marriage, I, I recall at age three, uh, I was hiding behind a couch watching my father break back into the house because my mother had locked him out. I don't know what the reason for that was, but when he finally broke into the house, this stand-up argument began and the terror and the fear in my heart. And I had a younger brother at the time. Uh, two of us, uh, my mother and father had two sons, and I remember reaching out. I don't know whether you ever recall or if anyone would recall these bouncing bassinets. They're like steel-framed with... Uh, knitting across them that you place a baby in a little seatbelt across, you know, f uh, very popular back in the okay. 60s and 70s. And, and you just, they, they sort of, once the baby starts bouncing, it can sort of put the baby off to sleep. Okay. I've got a younger brother who'd be six months old in this particular situation, bouncing on this bassinet. I'm reaching out from behind the couch, from behind the sofa, grabbing him, pulling him around behind the sofa because of the violence occurring in front of me. Wow. And, and watching, in the end, my father has, uh, you know, hit my mother and she's gone down like a sack of potatoes. And then he said some things and stormed off. And uh, I just remember the fear entering my heart. Now, imagine the impact of a little boy watching that and how unsafe daddy is. When the father of lies is allowed to father, <laughs> the name he gives is always a lie. Mm. So the concept that uh, dads aren't safe emotionally, physically, in any way. The fact that he was never there for me. And also that was the defining wound of my life because uh, when he checked out at that point, uh, he, he never came back. Uh, he signed off. That was it. He found my mother too much to deal with. Wow. The only way he knew to control her was to deck her. Uh, it was easier for him to turn to self-medication. Um, so that left my mother abandoned. Uh, mind you, what I didn't realise at that time but later found out uh, through other means Again, my mother didn't communicate a lot. She kept her cards very close to her chest. Uh, my mother had had several liaisons and relationships earlier in her life, uh, and all those men had let her down and used her. She'd been married once before, I've, I've since discovered, which I never knew about till wow. you know, probably only, say, 15 years ago. Then uh, when she married my father, of course, that hasn't ended well. Her own dad was very austere and not really available to her and quite harsh and... Uh, and so basically all the men in her life would let her down. So how do you think a mother who hates men is going to raise two little boys? Mm. You know? um, so being around my mother was just never safe. She was angry all the time. She was very harsh, vindictive. Uh, you could never get it right. You know, just 
the number of pronouncements she'd speak over me that that would help me buy into those lies, those inner vows, those agreements. Um, and for me, you know, the, the greater cry of my heart wasn't, you know, Mum, why won't you release me from this assault? It was more like, Dad, why won't you come back and rescue me? Mm. And so uh, caught up in the midst of all that, um, when my dad would come back and visit, um, he might come every couple of weeks just to take us to the beach or an outing for the day. And, uh, you know, he was just never around, but then suddenly I might do something wrong. I'd pick on my younger brother and then he'd intervene and discipline me. And I kind of thought, who is this dude? He's never around and he's come for a play day and suddenly I'm, 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 getting, I'm getting smacked and I'm trying to work out which way's up. And for that, you know, another call I came and I guess the heart of a little boy at that point thought, well, you just can't trust authority figures. And, and of course, whenever, whatever we project onto our own earthly fathers, whether we recognise it or not, the enemy does, by the way, it's part of his strategy, we then project onto Father God. You know, so I've got a dad who abandons me, who's not safe. I see the Heavenly Father as someone now who, who I can't trust as an authority figure. And, of course, my mother was really loud. She just used to yell a lot and uh, all the time. And I, I remember when she'd say no to something, I would... Uh, I'd go out and test that boundary. What 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 little boy wouldn't do that? When I found the fence that she'd erected that said, do not go past this point, when that kind of fell over and I found myself out into the next paddock, I realised there were no consequences to her nose. Mm. In, fact, in fact, mum's no didn't really mean no. Boundaries weren't really boundaries. I, in the end, I, I kind of worked out I could make my own rules. So I was not really disciplined. I didn't really get into trouble. Uh, certainly not by my mother. When my father came, it was very inconsistent. So I didn't have a lot of respect for any kind of order or, or, or regulation. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I grew up, you know, well, no doesn't really mean no, you know. When it comes to, 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 to laws, uh, I would flout them. Um, you know, I learned to manipulate. Uh, I, 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 the commandments, well, they're really just suggestions, aren't they? Wow. So. So I just, uh, you know, I, I was I was making my own way, and I figured I am. I think the core lie for me that the father of lies had kind of raised me to hold to as the truth was that I'm on my own. I got to work this out all by myself, and I cannot trust anybody else to help me. And uh, so that was the trajectory of my life, courtesy of the family unit breaking down in the way it had. And uh, uh, my dad, when he would come and visit, he'd, he'd love to make up for his absence with, with great toys. So a bit of a sugar daddy in that sense, as we would refer to it here in Australia, where he would, if I asked him for a train set, he would get me a train set. If I asked him next visit for a BMX bicycle, that's what he would get me. If I asked for a motocross bike, that's what he would get me. Mm. As I got older, eventually I asked him for a car. On my 18th birthday, he bought me a brand new car. Wow. Uh, and... In the end, I learned that my dad, again, no didn't really mean no. If I asked him for something, he would buy it. But in the end, I didn't want the materialistic things. There was a father hunger in me that wanted him, but he would replace it in his absence with these toys. So in the end, I, I became addicted to materialism. I, I, I learned to make the pain go away through, you know, as soon as under pressure, I'd want to go out and buy some expensive toy. Wow. And you e- can imagine. Even into adulthood, you're saying you saw that pattern. Oh. All of these patterns went into adulthood, mm. uh, you know, like uh, having no trust of God, uh, 
learning to live by myself, uh, lawlessness, uh, the addiction to materialism. And, of course, as a teenager, you know, an unfathered boy is an easy target for pornography and masturbation, and I got seriously addicted to those. Uh, you know, I, telling lies, I, I learned to avoid getting into trouble at school and with my younger brother, I always put the responsibility or, or the fault onto somebody else because uh, I wouldn't accept responsibility for my own actions. I learned to blame shift with uh, precision. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd, as, as a manipulator, I'd learned to craft the bullets and put them in someone else's gun to fire so there was no gun smoke residue on my hands. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> You know, and that's a very dangerous pattern, a very Jezebelian kind of pattern to grow up in. Mm. But in, you know, interestingly, you know, as I say that, and I'm, I'm making the links now in my head, you see all basis of control is founded in fear. And the truth is I'm acting tough, but I'm terrified. As a little boy, my whole cover is broken. You know, I've got parents who are at war, marriage is destroyed, I'm on my own. And, uh, you know, uh, the concept of Father God is safe and the only true antidote to fear is an intimate relationship with Abba Father, but that was just a foreign language to me that, that made no sense at the time. So I was on my own. Uh, and in the end, when, when you start telling lies, you've got to have a good memory to, to keep telling lies. Uh, in fact, I remember my dad once, after he'd actually kicked uh, alcoholism, AA was very helpful for him there. Um, and it was better... In the later years, I got to have some sort of relationship with him from about the age of 12 onwards, which I'm very grateful for. But those early formative years where he wasn't around cost me something dearly. But I remember him saying this to me. He said, Paul, he said, how do you know an addict is lying? <laughs> His lips are moving. <laughs> oh, man. That's so good. Wow. Wow. That stayed with me and it wow. haunted me. Because I realised that's what I'd become. I wasn't. I thought I was better than my dad because I wasn't addicted to alcohol, but I was addicted to so many other things that I, I hadn't recognised at the time. And uh, you know, if I'm, quote, I'm quoting Gordon Dolby here, he says, "An addiction is something you do consistently to avoid facing the truth about yourself." Mm. And uh, there, were, there was plenty of truth about me. I did not want to face. Very easy to blame everybody else and press on. So with all that as a backdrop, um, I get married. Uh, uh, I, I happen to have found Christ in the meantime, which is a miracle. I remember walking to a church. I, I won't name the denomination, but I remember at the front it had a sign saying all the things they were against. Wow. Premillennial, we are anti-charismatic, we're anti-this, we're, there, there were wow. plenty of things they were against. But I, <laughs> <laughs> it was a pretty clear mission statement. <laughs> wow. I, I walked inside and somehow Christ finds me in there. I actually make a genuine decision for Jesus, having come out of a Roman Catholic background where I understood I was I had a residual understanding of God and his existence, but I didn't know how to relate to him personally, connect. Uh, having entered that church, I, I, I met my future wife, uh, and we had a whole bunch of stuff to work through in terms of coming out of that backdrop with the uh, religious constriction that we were under there. and. But we did learn to have a great love for the Word of God in that background, which I'm thankful for. But the reality is that in pursuing Joanne, whom I met in that congregation, I remember, um, uh, you know, this is someone I can walk the rest of my days with, made a commitment to her. Uh, there were other previous girlfriends that I had slept with, and I thought, this is one I'm not going to do that to. 
But again, you know, I, I failed in that area and I put her under immense pressure and caused her great shame in that when she folded. Uh, and Joanne needed a lot of ministry for that because of uh, the pressure I put her on those areas. Again, it was me being selfish, you know, so I take full responsibility for that. But the reality is that I guess when the marriage got rolling uh, and, and the first sort of period of honeymoon came to an end, I think my poor wife started to realise what she'd been, what she'd married to. I think she, I think she was looking. I don't know how many Christian girls out there think, well, as long as they're born again, as long as they're Christian, they're okay. Mm. You know, mm. and you know uh, the, the the quote out of uh, I think it's, I think it's Ephesians. No, I'm not sure where it is now. Forgive me for not recalling the passage, but it talks about being equally yoked. Yes. And, uh, and oftentimes, I don't think that's always the best context to see it in because that, I think it's Corinthians actually, where it's talking about the church in Corinth looking at those who are involved with sexual sin and occult. And as Christians, we're not meant to be yoked with that. I think that's the context of the passage, if I recall correctly. Yes. Well, well, often we use it in the terms of, of, of marriage and make sure you're not unequally yoked with someone who's not walking with Jesus. So the assumption is then if they are born again, now it's okay. <laughs> Wow. Forget the fact. Forget the fact. I'm addicted to porn. I'm very self-focused. I trust no one. I have no real intimacy with God. Mm. Um, I'm addicted. I'm addicted to materialism. So you imagine when I've had a bad day at work. Mm. I've got no kids as yet. I come home and suddenly uh, I've had a boss yell at me. I'm not doing well. I go out. I'm on autopilot. I find myself at a motorcycle shop, test riding, you know, uh, a Yamaha R1, and I'm about to sign the paperwork to buy it. Wow. And suddenly I realise. Oh my goodness! What am I doing? Wow. Or, or it'd be nothing for me to go out and buy a five hundred dollar fishing rod and rig mm. and come home, and then realise that. And then, of course, I've got to lie about how I've purchased that so I don't freak my wife out. You know, so uh, trying to hide the finances. What sort of trust do you think that might build in a marriage when she mm. finds out about those kind of lies and deception? So, you know, all the carnage of my past catching up with me in this relationship, and nothing. Nothing builds character quite like marriage. I've discovered until the kids, Amen. until the kids, until the kids come along. Right, and you're and, still married. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and oh, you're man, really. It's been some refining fires. I'm very thankful to my Joanne. She has uh, been a, 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 an anvil upon which God has shaped me. Wow. Uh, she actually, she was actually going to walk out on me after the third year of marriage. Uh, there was lots of times she tried to confront me on things I needed to change on, but I, I kept kind of swinging it around to the point where I'd have her repenting to me and apologizing mm. for where she, she had failed me. I think once I'd walked away and the spell had broken, she'd think, how did that happen? How did I confront him on sin in his own life and the areas that were just deplorable? And next thing, I'm now apologizing to him. And mm. in the end, she figured he has no intention of changing. I went on a two-week fishing and hunting trip to Cape York Peninsula with some friends. I was away for two weeks, and uh, she planned her escape. She wrote a letter out, had a note ready to leave on the table, uh, and she was going to take one car, leave me the motorbike, disappear, and I would get back to this note in an empty household. Somewhere in there, God confronted her in a way and said, if you leave, you're justified to do so. But if you stay, I'll forge something in this marriage that mm. will be a witness of Christ returning for his bride. And uh, that was a struggle for her, but I'm forever grateful that she chose to stay in the battle. I think if God had said, you know, it's going to take 10 or 15 years, I'm not sure she would have hung around. I'm rather pleased he left the time frame out. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but she stayed. When I got back, she just hands this note to me, and I'm opening this letter reading it. 
seeing that she's talking in a letter about leaving, I, I started laughing. I thought it was a joke. Oh, my goodness. And, and then I realized, looking at her face, she wasn't smiling. And then she showed me packed bags. She, then she started unpacking the entire plan, where she was going to go. Uh, it would be a place where she would be unreachable and uncontactable. And then I realized how much premeditation had gone into this, how she had separated monies out in the accounts to leave me some and her to take the other part of that. And I, it suddenly dawned on me she meant business. And for the first time in my life, I kind of opened my heart to the possibility maybe there is something wrong with me that needs to be dealt with. And I just, I kind of, from that moment forward, there was a humility that just left a crack in the concrete plinth for God to start to work on. But we had no tools to work with it. We, we had no one that could really father us through this. Uh, there was a commitment to hang in there on both sides, but um, it was not easy. So you're, eventually, at this point, it's no, no kids, you're working in real estate, and you're not really part of any kind of church community. Uh, no, so we are actually part of a church community, but I have to say that church community did not have the tools to help us. In fact, that church community was elevating me on the basis of my gifting. That's I, I'd terribly gone, common I, I, and terribly tragic. Oh, oh, man. It's like, you know, it was in that environment that I learned that your gifting will take you to a place where your character cannot sustain you. Hmm. I just, I, they kept seeing some capacity in me. And they'd elevate me from small group leader to cell group trainer to eventually be equipped in church planting, to eventually be released uh, and commissioned into becoming a church planter and growing that congregation. We got it to about a size of about, you know, 200 people or so. I started raising people up on the front line, sort of winning people from the harvest for the harvest. And these people's lives started falling over when, when one person would suddenly that hadn't being a Christian that long would fall into an area of sin and, and, and derail that particular cell group. Someone else over here would get caught with their hand in the jar at work, pinching from you know uh, finances in, in a way that seriously lacked integrity. And I suddenly realized I, I didn't know how to take these people beyond a certain depth because I couldn't go beyond a certain depth. It's very difficult to give away that which you've never received. And I, suddenly I was, I, was, I, was, I was out of depth. I had nothing more to offer them. And I was starting to fall apart. The pressure of that brought upon my marriage, trying to raise this church. Now we have three kids on the ground. And as the years are rolling on, I'm thinking this cannot continue this way. My own denomination, my own uh, church background, really. I remember going to one particular church leader and saying, look, I'm seriously angry. And I'm not sure what I'm angry at. I'm addicted to a whole bunch of things. You know, I'm 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 trapped in pornography and masturbation. There's a there's materialistic things I'm going after that I just that aren't feeling any need in me, but I, I can't stop it. I don't. I need help. And I remember this, if you like. Uh, they use different terms, but if I use the word, this bishop in this denomination, in their in their position, said to me, "Oh, Paul, we all do that." Wow. And I just kind of thought, "You're kidding me." You, you, you just authorized that. And I thought, at, at least in my broken place, I knew this was not of God, that none of this was. Mm. And I, th I thought, I, I have to look elsewhere. I have well, to find like truth you elsewhere. Said, Paul, I just so appreciate you cannot lead somewhere. You cannot lead someone somewhere you haven't been yourself. And here you are saying, I want to go deeper. I, I know there's more life, but now you haven't found anyone that is there yet. Yeah. So... I've got a lot of broken people in my congregation, so 
you know, when, the, when you start acting the third person, I'm looking for people to help these broken people and because I'm the pastor of this flock. <laughs> but the secret cry of my heart is I'm hoping I can find someone who can help me. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm trying to find people. I'm bringing them in to help people that were re- recommended. I started to find there was some, you know, in the end I started letting wolves in to attack the sheep. You know, so they, they'd come, they'd minister to someone, and in the end this person would be in a worse place than before they were ministered to. And I, I thought, what am I doing? Eventually, someone in my congregation said, um, man, you need to check out LL Ministries. And I, I remember thinking it was like capital L, capital L when I heard it. Yeah. So I tried I tried to find it. I, I didn't know who they were talking about. When I went back and asked more, it was one of my own elders. And they said, look, we have uh, uh, a family connection to it. My father's just been over and done some training and equipping in the UK. These guys have uh, some real ability to help kind of you know, overcome wounds and character blockages in people. And I think they might be able to help us with what's going on in our flock with all these broken people. You have to remember the area I'm reaching out into and winning people to Christ in is a uh, what we would call a housing commission area in Australia. So en masse, they don't do it anymore, but they used to buy en masse in global blocks of land and develop it for housing commission where very cheap housing is available to very underprivileged people, lower socioeconomic groups. Okay. So it's subsidized so by the government. Yep. Okay. You got it. Suddenly, you've got unfathered families, a lot of abuse, a lot of alcoholism, a lot of addictions, a lot of pain, gangs forming, all sorts of drug cultures, just uh, all in the one location, you know. And so that's our backyard. Christ is very attractive to the poor, <laughs> but yeah. uh, but then they need some supernatural tools to set them free, and I had nothing. Mm. So I'm looking for these tools, also hoping I can benefit from that. Uh, this elder. I spoke to his father and said, talk, talk to me. Where have you been? What have you learned? And he said, would it be best if I come up and connected with you guys and shared a little bit more? So we invited, invited him up for a one-day seminar. I brought only my elders in, but I put two really seriously broken ladies who we'd won to Christ through like a play group, a mother's play group. Mm-hmm. I, slipped, I slipped them in the room. I wanted to see what the effect of his teaching was going to be on them. Uh, by morning tea, they were asking, could they be prayed for by this guy? And so he invited me to watch him pray, and suddenly it was like a whole bunch of stuff going on outside the paradigm of my theology that I did not understand in terms of the way he was ministering, going after things in their heart that were issues in the past, um, praying, inner healing, breaking stuff off, deliverance, just areas of agreements and vows. And I'm sitting there thinking, where is this in Scripture? What's going on here? But I watched what he did in two hours with these two women was what I hadn't been able to do in two years with them. Yeah. So I was very hungry to find out more. And I guess that journey led me into pursuing this ministry, not just to learn from, but I was wanting it for my own heart. And the connections I, I made had me con- connected to the founder of the ministry, uh, Peter Horobin. He actually invited me to come over to the UK to sh- move over there and be trained and equipped over there to then return to Australia and be a part of what this ministry does. And that was really attractive to me, but I hadn't given him the full story about what state my life was really in and what state my marriage was in and how angry I was at the three children that had now arrived, Daniel, Matthew, and Benjamin. And I remember thinking, I can't with integrity get them to move my family to the other side of the world to join their ministry with, unless he knows the full story. So full of fear, I phoned him and said, uh, Peter, it's Paul here. I just need to talk to you about this whole plan. You've got to bring us over to the UK, to your headquarters. I, I, I have to, I have to, I have to own up, man. I'm, I, I'm a seriously angry dude. I don't know how to control that. I'm, I'm, I'm hurting. There are all sorts of addictions. I talked to all of those with him, and, 
And I remember thinking, I was waiting for the, well, thank you for that, goodbye. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. And instead, instead I remember Peter exhaling just, <sighs> okay, now I know I can trust you. When are you coming over? Wow. I thought, my goodness. Oh. My goodness. I just kind of, that was, oh. Oh my that goodness. was new. That was new. I remember being in tears on the end of the phone thinking, okay, I'm coming. <laughs> so we packed up, went to the other side of the world. Uh, that's like back in 1999. Just had three children at that point. And, uh, you know, I could say we went over there to be retooled and uh, given new skills. But the truth was we went over there, we got sanded back, we got smashed, we got refined, and uh, we had a bit of a life rebuild over a couple of years that – put some serious foundations in place that weren't there and gave us something to build out of. I think I went over there arrogantly thinking, what's this going to take, two, three months? Yes. It's more like two, two three years wow. just to do just to do the basics. Uh, and I remember still when they wanted us to return to Australia to help establish this ministry, LL Ministries, here in Sydney in 2002, thinking, man, I don't think I'm ready for this. I thought, what a... I remember someone saying to me at the time, well, that's, that's very different when you first got here. You wanted to leave after two months thinking you had it all. And I remember that. That's true. That's that was my heart at the time. So, since then, uh, I had the privilege to develop this ministry to grow it, and we've got two other bases now in Melbourne and in Perth, in Western Australia. And uh, I'm the national director of this ministry. I still feel like I've got a lot to learn and grow in. Um, I have a place on the international um, leadership team. So twice a year, I go over to uh, Europe to connect with them. In fact, I've only just returned from the Netherlands and. Um, uh, I've been given some privileges. I hope I have the character now to walk in those areas of gifting. And on the journey of that, I have another three children in Jonathan, Aaron, and Hannah. And uh, we were always, I believe God told us to have six children, and we've honoured that. Mm. And uh, they have been the making of us. Mm. Everything I've learned has come through those. I mean, my seven primary disciples are Joanne and my six children. I figured if, if they aren't following me, why would anybody else bother? Mm. Mate, so there's a bit of a snapshot. By the way, in the midst of all that, God's done some powerful work in setting me free from really all of those addictions. Uh, I'm in no way perfect, but, you know, most of the major bases are covered. Every now and again, under immense pressure, some new character flaw will surface. I've got to to tackle. But uh, because who you are in a crisis is who you are. So as soon as a crisis surfaces, I get a whole new level of learning uh, uh, to draw nearer to Father. But the key now is I know I can run to him as a good dad mm. rather than have to do it all by myself. I have a short list of people that are competing for the the word that I want to give of most transformed. And like <laughs> there's a short list because most people taper off and you know we most people don't want any change, right? We 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 try and <laughs> pursue a world that requires no change in us. That that we're static and we can minimize uh, risk. And maximize security and safety, and and you're you're just being transformed every time I spend time with you. You're different, and you're more mm. you, and the edges are, are are chiseled off more, and you're safer, and you're stronger, and you're more joyful, and uh, and that story makes a lot of sense. So I I really appreciate, I just appreciate the backstory so much, and it, it's bearing so much fruit, Paul. It's it's tremendous. Yeah, thank you for that encouragement, yeah. mate. And, and I, I kind of cut short on the story only for time of how God rescued me from yes. all those things. And they're powerful stories all on their own. But truly, 
without learning to find Father God as intimate and holy and someone I could learn to trust. There's no way I could have broken free from the father of lies in so many areas that were driving so many ugly behaviors. And I'm just very thankful for how he's rescued me. But thank you for that yeah, encouragement. It's incredible. Well, let's get into some specifics just as it relates to initiation because I'm aware you have five sons and you're you're right in the midst of it. And I'm I'm guessing that it's been a process for you because you are being initiated even still and maturing and growing as your sons are in this dynamic process of moving from boyhood to manhood. And and so I'd love to just pepper you with a handful of questions and just hear your heart sure. on them. Um, Go for it. So when you think of your boyhood, given that story that you just shared, um, if you had to try to put into words, like what do you wish you received? What What would have initiated you? so that you were a wholehearted man? Mm, great question. I think, first of all, a father that just stays around and gives me time, that, that would have been valuable. Like my kids, they spell love, T-I-M-E, just for me to stay and engage them, to, to be there. Uh, and, and it's now paying off. My older kids now call me when something goes pear-shaped, like I got a phone call from Canada at about you know midnight last night with a, an issue of a pressure in a marriage situation that needed some immediate attention. Wow. Uh, you know, there, there's but what I love about that is, you see, my sons now think to call father, mm. and my job then is to point them to their true father. Yes, and 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 so uh, you know, in time there will come a time when I'm not here, and they need then the intervention of other men. Hopefully they'll have lots of contacts, which I've been trying to set them up with, and they'll, of course they'll have their true father. So to have a father that stayed engaged, that my dad didn't. He couldn't do that. It was easier to run and to abandon. So to have a father just stays engaged, stays connected, is able to um, emotionally pursue the health of his children and to see and to read when they're down. You know, I'm, I'm watching my kids all the time. So that means I've got to be have an eye on them. They've got to be uppermost in my mind. And for me, again, like it, it, I, I take it seriously that if my kids aren't tracking well, why would you want to hear anything I have to teach? You know, if my marriage is not humming, why would you want to listen to anything I have to say? Mm-hmm. I, I just that's just my, just a standard I hold myself to mm-hmm. because it's in those areas. When they're not, when not, when some of those relationships, those primary relationships aren't working well, that's that's God's sign to me. This is an area I want to now initiate you in, Paul. And there's going to be something you can learn out of this stuff to others. So back to your question with, with my dad. Um, as I grew through life, I thought how I wished my dad could have been there to talk to me about girls, about how when I got to, uh, you know, uh, puberty, what was going to happen and in my body and what was going to change and 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 the impact of that. And to walk me through that, to hear his struggles in that area, and maybe how a holy God had helped him walk through that. Uh, and if that, and if he didn't have any answers, it would have been just refreshing to have heard that. And let's say, let's go find some answers together. Yes. So, so you know, so so those just I, I, there was no intimacy between me and my father in a way at that level that enabled me to see men as trustworthy. Mm. And so that's why it's so easy for us to go to girls because emotionally they want to connect. Yes. And that then makes that then that makes a, an unfathered boy unsafe around such women because I'm looking for something from them 
that only my Heavenly Father can give me. And uh, so, you know, as, as John would describe, we're looking for validation in the woman. And that's also quite key in that whole calling out away from mother too, which um, I'd love to come back to. But for me, I think when I look at my life when I was being uh, growing up at home, I think I got to the point where I started to ask questions based in this premise. I think I, I was getting to the point where how I wish I had been fathered by my dad, what would that look like? In other words, um, where was I never properly fathered by my dad when I was growing up? What investment was my heart robbed of that I needed from my dad? In what ways do I wish I had been fathered? That's how I want to father my kids. So when I thought that through, that became the premise or the foundation upon which I built the series of rites of passages that I have for my kids. Because you know, I know a lot of guys just want to do a one-off special occasion or a one-off rite of passage, but a one-off event gets lost in the sea of time. That that's never going to be enough. Uh, you know, as young men, we need a series of in, of trials and tests and initiations and rites of passages that have a dad and other significant men investing in us over time, walking with us, that we can call upon to interpret situations and grow through those pressured moments. And for me, you know, from the age of seven, I start up until seven. I mean, I read a book once where Hitler said, give me a child till he's seven. You can have him after that. Wow. <laughs> so those first seven years are formative. They're powerful. And I see it here. You know, we, we get 2,500 people a year coming through this center here looking for help. And, and every one of them, it's the early formative years that have fashioned those lies. You know, so where the father of lies is allowed to father in that early formation period, the name he gives is always a lie. And sometimes we live under multiple lies, depending on the, the critical events that have occurred in their life. Although I find that for most people, the unhidden, the hidden wound, the unseen wound, is not the critical event that's happened to us, but it's the lack of nurture over time we did not get. It's the cuddles we did not get. It's the hearing your father say, I love you, on a daily basis. A dad who doesn't come up and snuggle us in bed and wrestle with us and get his whiskers under our chin and just tickle and, and, and get a child's delight squealing. That, that's nurture not going in. And a lot of people, we, I didn't get that, and most of us didn't get that, truth be known. And so that makes it very hard for us to picture the prodigal son story of a dad who wants to run to us yes. and cuddle us and kiss us. You know, when I teach on that, I just watch the, I watch the blank eyes in the in the audience thinking, what is he talking about? Mm. Because it's not part of their life experience. So I wish I'd got that from my dad. And I've had to go on a journey to learn that from my Heavenly Father so I can start to offer that to my, my children. Uh, and just interesting, too, when you have six kids, I've learned that Daniel, who's child number one, was born into a very different family to child number six, Hannah, because of the distance in years and the distance in, in, in growth. Yes. You know, so every child is born into a different family, really. And what, what, does Even, that, what do you do with that? How does that inform you? Well, I've had to go back and work out where was I failing those earlier children? And now what do I need to do to facilitate their healing? And, uh, and I remember asking both sons, Daniel and Matthew, my two oldest boys, Ben was just not quite old enough yet. I said, would you guys come over tonight? There's a teaching I want to give on the Father Heart of God on acceptance and belonging. I want to talk to that. And I think there's something in here that God might want to do for you. And I remember teaching on it. They were on the front row, looking keen. And as I talked to that, by the time I got to the end of it, 
and invited uh, God to come and minister to everyone in the room. I've got two sons who are seated 10 metres apart from each other, wailing like stuck pigs. Mm. <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking, I'm just trying to hold it together, thinking I'm the cause of this pain, you know. Oh. And I'm sitting there thinking, hold it together, Ryan, hold it together. I just have to, Father, I need you to now come and minister in ways that only you can, you know. And so I'm praying from the front, letting him do that. And I'm trying to signal for a couple of guys on my ministry team to come to my sons. And they made their way over to, you know, comfort them and offer to minister to them and love them and get to the seat of the problem, thinking that it would be far better they connect with somebody else other than me. And I noticed simultaneously both of them, Daniel and Matthew, blew these guys off and said no, and they both simultaneously pointed to me without the other seeing it, saying no. I could see it on their lips. I want my dad. I want oh. my dad. Oh. Mate, that finished me. I just I'd hand over to somebody else. <laughs> wow. And I, I I went I went to each of them separately, and I said, what, what what is it you need from me? And I had these sons just telling me where I'd failed, what I'd done wrong, and how it had crushed them or hurt them. Mm. In one of the in one of the instances, I remembered the event. I remember my first response was. I was, I was just about to justify myself. Oh, well, you don't. You need to understand. And I just caught myself mm. and I kind of stopped. And I just remember the Father saying to me, as in my Heavenly Father saying, Paul, validate the wound. Mm. Uh, and I just said, uh, and it might have been Daniel I think I went to first. Daniel, I am so sorry. Would you forgive me where I failed you? And as I did that, he just lost it. It's like this well of pain. And remember, wherever the wound is, there'll always be a well of pain if it's not healed. And then that pain is 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 what the rocket fuel, if you like, that drives the lies that affects the behaviours. And so you have all these men out there and women trying to change these behaviours, but they don't want to deal with the, the lies implanted by the father of lies when the wound take place. And you don't want to deal or expel or hand over to Father God all this pain we carry. You know, where it says in Isaiah 53 verse 4 about how God, you know, perish for our sin and our iniquities but to carry our sorrow away he wants to take it away and so this this just lance this wound and my son just bursts into tears and he's just in my arms we're just both in tears crying together for i don't know 20 30 minutes i pray what i need to as god led me for inner healing for deliverance to just get junk off him and and uh some powerful stuff occurring there and i just left him in a peaceful place with god and then i go over to son number two and had to do it all again my goodness, mate, my heart was destroyed by the end of the night, in a good way. But uh, the, the next event I did recall and I recognised what had happened there and, and, and that I was wrong and I apologised profusely. Mm. And again, another, another wound lanced. And and just so my so your earlier question was, what does that mean and, and what how does that inform you? I've had to learn, if, if you've got older sons, it's never too late to go back and fix this. And they may not be in a place where my sons were ready to receive. And, and I'd done a lot of good things with my sons. So they were. I love the way they said, no, I want my dad. <laughs> yeah. And not, not every father will have a son who's ready to do that yet. Right. But, but, I, but I'm convinced that the hearts of the fathers will be returned to the sons and the hearts of the sons will be returned to the fathers, yeah. you know, by the spirit of Elijah. That's a promise to break the curse of fatherlessness. So the, the, for me, to go back, to minister to that, to bring change, the bonds are stronger than ever between my sons and I now. Mm. More powerful than ever. So, yeah. So in every one of those situations, all of my rites of passages are based around that. Where do I wish I'd been fathered when I was younger? Mm. I think that's how I'd respond to your question there. Do you want to draw more out Well, in the that? piece about, um, you know, um, separating from mom, it sounds like that's an important part of your story. And I can 
you know, I, I, I could uh, presume why, but can you say some about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, when I first was arranging the number one rite of passage for my eldest son, Daniel, I had no clue what I was doing. I went to my wife, Joanne, and said that I, I, I wanted to do this and I'd like to have her involvement in some way and I wasn't too sure how. And then I got this incredible resistance from Joanne. Like, she was not happy that I was planning such an investment in a son. You have to remember, first of all, at that stage, Daniel probably hadn't been, because of some of the, his earlier woundings with me as an angry father, yes. he wasn't being probably the best son he could have been yes. uh, as, a, as a younger boy. And then uh, he's turned that around now powerfully. Uh, I'm very proud of him as a father and as uh, a husband and what he's doing today. I'm, I'm seriously impressed with him. Uh, but at that time, I think even he would acknowledge, you know, he was he was probably not the, the nicest son to his mum. And she, she's thinking, seriously, you're going to bless him? You're going to go out and buy him a shotgun? And you're going to spend all this money on a what? Take him away for a weekend for a special investment to say thank you for the way he's behaving? But also the understory there was, remember what I was like as a husband in the early years? Mm-hmm. I have still not learned how to invest in my wife. I, had, I still had not improved to the point where I was able to pursue her heart. There were still areas of her heart. There were pockets of unhealed areas, wounds that I had caused that I hadn't yet been able to bring healing to as a husband and to take it to the father to have that restored. And I was still learning what that looked like at the time that, you know, Daniel's rite of passage came around. So she's resisting from two fronts. One, she's thinking this son doesn't deserve this. And secondly, she's resisting from, you know, you do nothing for me, but you want to spend all this money on him. Mm, and and so she so she is seriously in my face. She's exploding. I remember the scene. She's hanging up washing and flinging at the line and snapping pegs as she's putting on and really giving me curry. And I'm standing there thinking, I, I, you know, it was a crucial moment. Had I backed down at that point and just – because I was starting to come under shame. I'm thinking she's right. I'm a terrible father. I've caused that in Daniel. I'm hopeless. This is never going to work. Who am I kidding? And she's right. I've, I don't know how to be a great husband to her. And just all the accusations just starting to wash over me. And I just kind of thankfully I engaged the heart of my father again and said, Dad, what do I do? I heard him say, hold to your guns. I'm in this. You need to, you need to press on. And I, I heard him say this. If you pull out here, all of your sons will miss out. And you'll miss out on something you can give away to many others. And it kind of just it sort of woke me up. I thought, holy smoking Josephine. I just I turned back to Joanne and she just sort of just finished venting. I said, honey, I'm sorry. There's a lot of things that I failed you in, and I understand that and I need to repair that. But this is something I need to do for this son. We're not doing it because he deserves it. This is God's spirit who wants to call him out, and I need to orchestrate something here, whether you're on board with it or whether you're not. Now, that didn't go over so well. If I thought the first assault she gave me verbally was was, mm. was powerful, the second one was absolutely unrecordable. Oh, my goodness, Paul. <laughs> but I just somehow I thought I have to hold to this. I have to find resolve in this because God's in this. Uh, now, now I'm seeing not just the assault of what my – I'm not carrying the wound of what my f- mother has infected in me but i'm now feeling it from my from my mo- my own wife in, in the way that I, I felt like i was standing like a little boy in front of my mother again you know what i'm saying yes 
And I just thought, I felt so little, and I thought, what is going on here, Father? And he said, it's what I want to help you understand to recognize men need to be rescued from. See, the deeper cry isn't, Mum, why won't you let me go? The deeper cry is, Father, why won't you call me away? And this is profound, I think, for men because when, as dads, we are passive, we are absent. Uh, how did you put it earlier? Initially, you were describing it as we're just all little boys getting ferried around by our mothers right. in the absence of our fathers. Right. Uh, and, and so we live in this feminine world where there's no initiation. And, and, and the heart of a mum, God bless them, they, their heart is to protect, to provide in a way that offers sweet nurture that, that is, is just, you know, uh, only a mother can give. There's something about femininity that reveals something about the father heart of God that only a woman can bring. But in that becomes such a protection that, you know, you can't let a kid jump on a trampoline for fear he might break something, you know. Uh, th- th- they're not allowed to go out and smash trucks together because they might break the truck. And I'm thinking, no, kids need, boys need to break, smash trucks, you know, right. because there's something in them. In them that needs, you're going to need something in that young man one day that's dangerous. Yes. <laughs> and and I, I, can't, I cannot allow your femininity to squash that out of him. You know, and so something had to rise up in me, unfathered in it. This is the difficult thing. Like, the assault upon me was quite intense at that time because I, I, I had no one guiding me. I look back now, I'm stunned at the, the miracle of it, that I could press through with that. So this concept of calling away from mother is to recognize that if, we, if left in the hands of protective women who mean well, we, we rob a son of being physically, literally invited up into a fellowship of godly men to be taken away and rescued. And in the middle of all this, um, somehow, I don't even know how it happened, I, I get a book in my hands by Gordon Dolby, first time I had contact with this name. The book was uh, called Healing the Masculine Soul. And as I'm reading it, you know, it's it. Gordon Dolby's not a page turner. And I've referenced every one of Gordon Dolby's books. I've actually had him come out and speak and do men's events, and he's a personal friend and a key mentor to me, and I've learned much from him. But this first book I read, From Healing the Masculine Soul, in chapter number three, there's a a, a chapter there called Come Out, Son of Our People. And he was describing this scene where he was in Africa as a young man watching these people in a tribe uh, call out these young boys at around the age of 13, away from their mothers, the mothers screaming, not wanting to let them go. And these tribesmen gathered. One man, I think he was called the Imu man. He was a masked man. He was representative of the spirit they wanted to call the boy into. Now, wrong spirit, but right idea. Yes. And so these men call this boy away, and this this spirit guy runs forward and steals the boy away from a screaming mother who eventually has to relent. And I love that because, you see, it, it's the spirit that calls the boy out, you know, and there's even a verse for that in Galatians. It's the spirit that calls us out. But the reality is it, it's going to take a father to engage us. And if you saw that video, again, I'm quoting from Galatians where it says, you know, it's a father that calls a son out, you know, no longer a slave, but now an heir. We have to call him out. And on the day I choose to do that at that rite of passage, I make it clear, you know, Daniel, Matthew, Benjamin, Jonathan, Aaron is next Easter. I say, guys, that day is today. Mm. I'm calling you up into something bigger. You know, I'm, 
I'm calling you away from your mother. You don't need to hide behind her petticoat anymore. Mm. She has poured much into you. The nurture you've received from her should never be forgotten. And we need to learn to respect her. When you return, you'll still be subject to her authority as a mother. But the reality is there is something far bigger you need to be called up into. Yeah. And it is it is spiritually powerful. You felt it when you watched it. Oh, I did. I did. It's tremendous. And I and understand that where when you're called out in love, when your soul is being invited to enter a safe and strong fellowship, then there there is a in some ways there's a blessing on the mother that then happens, oh, I would absolutely. suspect, right? Because she's actually she has she also equally is is being fashioned to raise up children that she will release, right? Oh, it's like not, not to hold on forever. And so many men I counsel and I meet, the storyline is they're married to their mothers. Where exactly. their, their husbands, fa their fathers, who are the husbands of their moms, failed emotionally. And so those women attach to their sons in the absence. And, and so there's actually a divorce that needs to take place in so many men in the area that was to be the greatest nurturing for their sake. Instead, there's this severe damaging because they were looked to to provide out of a of a need that couldn't be filled yep. by their husband. You've nailed it. I mean, that's it. You, that divorce, that that that, if you like, a second postpartum. It's like the umbilical cord gets cut once physically at birth between a mother and a son, but it needs to be cut a second time spiritually when a boy is taken away from his mother in such fashion. Hmm. And my wife needed to be educated on this to understand I'm not I'm not taking your son away from you in a cruel fashion. This is essential. So it will it will change the way he relates to women. It will change the way he relates to you. And and and, and honestly, the number of men that we've actually done this for here as adult men and how that has healed their sexual addictions. Because you see, when a, you just picked it up there before, when we have a, a husband and and wife where the husband cannot emotionally engage the wife as she needs him to that wife as a mother will then start to emotionally engage the son in a way that's unhealthy and we get that whole leave and cleave issue that's not really dealt with and so that divorce you reference that that, that that second cutting of the umbilical cord that's essential when I feel um, muted around men I, I don't feel safe to go to them but a woman who I've learned to connect with and I feel safe with that I'm engaged to, I can go to her and I can draw something from her that I, I think empowers me through the physical intimacy I could have with her, but it's a lie. And until we can engage men and recognize we need to disengage from that and, and re-engage a holy father who wants to empower us intimately, uh, that ceremony alone hasn't just affected my sons. It's powerfully impacted many men who've been set free because of that. So you so just so I understand you right you're saying often the pattern you see is men that get stuck in sexual addiction ultimately there's some rooting in the boy in them still looking to the woman to essentially provide them something of nourishment and comfort and intimacy that actually at, at some point was intended to be turned to to receive from a loving father. Absolutely. That's Fascinating. It. And until that 
realization of the truth of that is matter where to a man. Now, I have to say, to be honest, not every man's sexual addiction will be linked to that. Yes. But many of them have been. The, the, the core issue, actually, for any addiction is that we go to a lesser lover for comfort rather than to the lover, the comforter. That, that's the core issue with addiction. And until we can get someone to recognize that, you know, the, the root word in, in, in Latin is adicea, A-double-D-I-C-E-R-E, from which we get the word addiction. And adicea means to give assent to. So in other words, when you give assent to a behavior or a substance that you come under or get affected by, you, you give assent to it. You elevate it above the throne of God and you make it an idol. You break the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me, for I am a jealous God, and it masters you. And, and you have to actually learn that I've gone to something for false comfort and it's mastered me and I need to now turn, call that sin and go to a holy God mm. in repentance and let him now become the comforter to me in the areas that you know, I had these emotional needs that I was letting something else fill. And a woman is a gift to a man in that area. I mean, I love the way John writes when he says, you know, that uh, Eve, the golden-haired woman, we all run to. And in some ways, we've, we've made idols of women in such way. And But for many of us, it begins back with that unhealthy emotional connection with mum. Yes. And, when you, and our mums need to be educated on that. Women, wives need to be educated on that. And my, my wife now is one of the strongest proponents of this. Because for her, it, it doesn't just free up her sons. It frees up her. She now can go to Father God. Because what it does is, the first time I did this with her, I mean, it broke her. And, and what made it worse was I didn't realize the impact it would have on her. So I throw a bunch of guys into a vehicle, disappear in a four-wheel drive to go away to invest in a son, and leave her kind of post-birth on the steps bleeding, wondering what just happened. Mm. And I've learned now I need to get other women around her and people who can come alongside and for her to unpack and, and share what the moment was like for her and, and for her to be able to release and let go. And she needs to be prayed for after such a release mm. because what it does is it'll surface in her, her own insecurities that she's clinging to a son for that she needs to go to a holy God for. So there's, wow, there's two people's lives who are being changed here. Fascinating. That is fascinating. Paul, uh, mm. you talked about the idea of 13, you know, we're talking about this significant moment at 13 and this rite of passage in a weekend. And you also said, I, I loved how you said, in the sea of time, it is so easy for one moment to be lost. And you alluded to, it's a series of rites of passage that ultimately form the initiation. And you mentioned trials and, and, uh, and challenges. Can can you say more about maybe some of the elements you've observed over time that you found to be really significant and maybe even more specifically like you talked about 7 to 13 is is this huge of the boyhood development 13 being huge what have you seen with Daniel and Matthew um, Benjamin as they've transcended ascended I should say past 13 yeah. what what's initiation look like and and um, in general, what, what, what generalizations are you coming to as you've specifically observed your older sons? Yeah. Um, in that window from 7 to 13, I guess uh, for the first, there's two key questions. John's nailed it, really. Am I the beloved son? And do I have what it takes? 
But am I the beloved son is the core question. Always has been, always will be. Why? Because if as an earthly father, I can let my sons know that they are the apple of my eye, that I, I cherish them. And it's not just words, but there are actions involved with that. There are connection points. Uh, there are ways that I, I, I live that out with them. By the time I spend with them watching sport, by the you know the investment I make reading them stories, reading them Bible stories, reading the Narnia Chronicles, reading to them. No, no one read to me. I still find it difficult today to pick up a book to read it. It's a discipline. But my sons love reading. Most of them pick up. I got one son who reads about a book a month. Mm. You know, uh, because because their father read to them. You know, for them it's it's not about picking up a book. It's about connecting with dad. Is the association. And so all that investment there is key in those first early years to know that dad loves them. See, it's very easy for a, a, an adult man when you say, do you know the Heavenly Father loves you? Hell yes. <laughs> Why? Yes. My, because my dad loved me. Wow. And he demonstrated that via these avenues, you know. Uh, whereas some of you guys come here and I talk about a Heavenly Father wants to run to them, hug them and kiss them. And they kind of look at me like, what planet are you from? You know, the association they have with dad and father is not good. He is unsafe. He has harmed me. He has abandoned me, you know. Uh, and so we have to get past all that junk and we have to dismantle all those wrong beliefs that they're projecting onto what God is like. And that's the enemy's greatest assault, by the way. I want to pull back and look at all the areas that the enemy hits us in. The core assault is this. The enemy's main thrust is he must discredit the character of God. And the best way he can discredit the character of God is to assault fathers so they are not good husbands. And then we have a marriage that starts to falter and a man or woman who's meant to represent the nature and the character of God to the children under them. Those children then get a very poor picture of marriage and marriage is meant to represent Christ returning for his bride and that promise at the end of time. So that, that promise goes up in smoke when the marriage goes up in smoke. And then the image of a father and a mother being able to invest powerfully into their children what the nature and the character of Father God looks like is also then messed up when dads and mums don't get what they need from their parents because what you don't get, it's very hard to give away to the next generation. So I find the spiral downward of every generation that comes after that is worse than the one before. It's like reading the Old Testament when the kings start to fail and Israel falls into further sin and gets handed over to its enemies. You know, I'm seeing that generation after generation. Until this point in time, there seems to be some move of God starting to fulfill that Malachi 4. I'm seeing a shift, and I want to ride that wave. So for me, this whole area of, as a child in the early years, that investment needs to go into my sons to know they are beloved, because that alone is the core foundation upon which everything else comes out of. Because under pressure, if that's not in place, a 30-year-old man, when it all goes pear-shaped, when the pressure comes on him and everything is, is against him, if he doesn't know he's the beloved son, the questions he's going to, come up, going to come out with is, God, why did you allow this to happen? Why did you let this happen to me? Why won't you fix this? How come this has occurred? You've let this happen to me. You know, th th those, those accusing prayers demonstrate in their heart they don't believe God is good. Mm. But a son who's been loved and cherished, who knows his father is there for him, who, you know, will come when he, I remember I was sitting over here teaching one time. I had 70 people in a room and I had a son waving at me, waving at me, calling me to come out. And I kind of pressed on for a minute, but I could see the desperation on his face. And I just thought, 
I got to go. I, I don't know what the issue is, but I, that son needs me, <laughs> you know. And I, I dropped tools and I walked out of the teaching room, threw the baton to someone, and said, "Just jump up and do what you got to do." And when I went outside, what had happened was one of my other sons had fallen off his BMX bike, slashed his head, and was you know concussed and bleeding down in the back paddock. So I had to run down to him. I'm, I'm pleased I ran out of the room, mm. but. But it was so easy to say, no, I'm sorry, I've got a God assignment here I have to complete first, you know. What, what would that communicate to those sons in that moment, you know? So I'm, that's fairly primary for me to make those kind of calls and it would be very rare where I wouldn't make those calls. In those early windows, that's key. Then from 7 to 13, I start looking at, okay, how do we formalise this more now with initiations, with tests, with trials, small things. Might be learn to light a fire with a flint, starting with, you know, cheating using little fire starters. Some of you have them in the States, but those little kind of fuel blocks you yes. put in the fire to learn, just to learn to light a match safely and, right. and then build it up where we start without the fuel, um, but building a proper, you know, well-constructed fire to eventually starting it with a flint. I mean, that's a bit of a test for a young lad. That's a bit of a test for an adult. Yes. And so learn to do that and being there to have a bunch of men go, woo way to go, buddy, you can do this. You know, then comes the second question, you know, uh, do I have what it takes? But I think I learned earlier on with my older sons, I started going too soon for the do I have what it takes initiations, whether it's changing an oil on a car, whether it's learn to back a trailer up, uh, how to hitch up a trailer, learning how to you know hunt a, an animal, how to uh, butcher that animal and skin it, how to tan the hide, learning how to sharpen a knife safely, um, those sort of things that I could provide and invest in I started to find my older sons later would reflect back at me and say, you know what, Dad, uh, I, I, by the way, just so you know, I, when you asked me to do this, this uh, have this chat with you, I emailed my three older sons. I said, where did the rites of passages I took you through work really, really well for you? And where are the areas that it failed you? Mm, fascinating. I'm so glad you asked them. And so what they came back to me with in their reflections was that in some of those initiations that I took them through, they felt like it was more that they had to perform to get love. Mm. If, if they didn't pass the initiation, that, you know, they felt like this is a pressure test. If I don't pass this, I fail and I don't get my dad's love. And I thought, wow, how did I, how did I let that wolf in, yes. you know, uh, of performance orientation? And I realized it's with my earlier sons, I don't think I was doing the best job of investing in them with the first question you know do i do i know i'm the beloved son and so uh you know that's that's been helpful to learn that from them because mm. it's improving the way i invest in my sons that i'm yet to take through these processes but those areas of just whatever you know i can find that actually is something that i can get alongside them with in some adventure or some place to hone a skill possibly but the the key isn't so much the skill as it is time with dad but at the same time as they're learning something, they're being celebrated for having succeeded in that. Something in them is growing that they know they can handle this. And I, I think for me, if I was to base it biblically, uh, you know, with, with, with King David as a boy, he takes out, before he ever takes on a Goliath, he takes out a lion and a bear. And I'm thinking, you take out a lion with a slingshot. Yes. I mean, it's just the understatement of the Old script, of the Old Testament. He took out a lion with a freaking slingshot. Mm. That, I just, like, when you just read through that passage, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, big deal. Yes. But but then he takes out a bear. A bear! Mm. 
you should know more than I, a bear. He takes out a bear with a little stone. Mm. What, what, possible, what possible threat could a, could a nine or ten foot man be to you mm. if you've taken out a bear? Yes. And so those early initiations where Father God has poured into him, you know, I love you, I'm with you. And, and the trust that David has, you know, and the irony, he picks up five stones knowing he'll only need one, you know. <laughs> I love it. Love it. Bang, down comes the big boy. It's like, <laughs> it's like, like he knew before the stone was even chosen out of the creek bed, this sucker's going down because my father has my back. Mm. And so the whole concept of all this stuff, all these initiations, all these rites of passages is to know you are the beloved son that your heavenly father will back you and that you do have what it takes. When you step up to bat for the supernatural feat that is required, when I left home, I was an idiot. And I remember just walking out the door thinking, thank God I'm out from under my mother's covering. Now I can go and be a real man. And it was a poignant time in my life and I made some stupid decisions because I was out from under the the, the protection of home, as, as it were, not that there was a lot of protection there for me, whatever it offered, when I came out from under it, I suddenly was left with these pressures in the world confronting me that I had no framework or no masculine initiation to set me up to be able to handle what was coming, and I made some really bad calls. And I, it's taken me a while to recover from those bad calls. So a, a ceremony for my older sons when they're leaving home to get key men in around them and say, these are the mistakes we made when we left home. Mm. This is what it cost us. This is how many years it took to repair that. This is how Father God has uh, transformed us through those processes. Uh, and to have those guys, and again, they get more and more picture of what it means to be a real man. You know, Dolby says a, a real man is a man who's real, a guy who's authentic. A religious guy has to be right. Mm. But a, but a real guy can just be open and vulnerable and tell it like it is and, and, and not live in the shame of the story he's you know, succumbed to but actually recognise that once rescued from it, there's this power in that testimony that others can be you know, gain hope from. So these men sharing those stories of the rescue of a holy God in their life to a young guy leaving home, uh, about to leave home, is quite powerful. Um, we've caught some images and pictures of that for teaching purposes with my sons. Also, when they're about to get married. So I've had two sons that are married now and be able to capture those moments. I remember the first one we did with Daniel uh, and then again with Benjamin. We had, I think, with Daniel, from memory, 159 years of marriage experience. Mm. And I asked the guys these questions. Where has your marriage gone pear-shaped? Where has it really gone bad? And what has, have you allowed God to do to bring repair to that? What have been the best things about marriage that just really made it sing, that have really, been, that have really blessed you? And how do you see the purpose of marriage? Talk, talk to this statement, you know, that where, where marriage's purpose is to reveal Christ returning from it for his bride. Talk to me about how your marriage is starting to form and shape to look like that. And so these guys talk to those questions in front of my son before he gets married. Mm. I, mean, I don't know about you, but... How I wish someone had sat me down and give me some idea what I was in for with the pressures that are going to come on me in marriage. Oh, absolutely. Uh, instead, it, instead, it's carrying this um, self-imposed pressure of I'm going to do it right. I'm going to get this right, right? It, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to screw this up. And it's just yeah. all, again, that self-initiation of yeah. uh, very little roadmap, very little encouragement, very little bit of uh, uh, um, uh transparency of how it's gone sideways for people and how they've recovered from it 
and what that yeah. what it really looks like, right? Yeah, absolutely. And then, of course, finally, the becoming a father. I've had one son, Daniel, has got his first been on the ground, and my first grandchild, uh, little Amelia. And um, I thought, when, when I had a child coming, I had no clue what was coming. I didn't know what impact that was going to have on my wife. Uh, I didn't know understand the sleeplessness, the lost hours, the pressure that would put me under. I didn't understand what that was going to do to my sex life with my wife. No one forewarned me of anything like that. Uh, I just didn't get it. And so, again, to have a bunch of guys with, you know, several children to sit down and talk to my sons about what to expect and how to position for that and to prepare their hearts for that and look for the, the adventure that this will bring in. And to bring in statements like from Derek Prince that says, you know, that man's highest achievement is fatherhood because we get to represent Abba Father to the next generation. And so just to pour that kind of stuff in is just powerful. But just as I'm sharing that, can I throw another thought in here? Please. Uh, you, you, you mentioned about what the series of rites of passages would be and what those initiations are and what the benefit of those and why would I do multiple ones? And I think I mentioned earlier, you picked up on the statement about one-off event can get lost in the sea of time. I suppose to talk to that just quickly and then throw in another thought of something that I learned recently. If you just have one special occasion, uh, that might be helpful. I'm sure it's encouraging and a blessing and better than maybe nothing. But, but ultimately, I've seen some guys who've come here who've watched what I do and they've gone away probably more in a religious fashion thinking this is – a slave works to a to-do list. A son checks in with father, you know, and and too many guys have gone away thinking, oh, this is something I have to do, and so they've arranged for something. I remember a couple of years ago, I had one guy, it's only two years ago, a young guy came in, probably about uh, 19 or 20, came to our Proven Men's event, and uh, one session he got up after I talked to this, these whole rites of passage and initiations and intentional initiations in one of the sessions. He came up to me and he was quite angry and he was accusing me of uh, teaching my father to do this in a way that really ticked him off. And I, I didn't understand where he was coming from. I said, can you just slow down and just help me understand what's happened here? His dad had come to one of our events five or six years earlier, had heard this teaching to the degree I developed it at that time. He goes away and he arranges for a special weekend for his son um, and makes an investment on that weekend. But the father had had no investment in his son prior to that event, mm. wasn't pursuing his heart, wasn't able to come alongside of him, never attended his sports event. He was really a very busy guy and unavailable to him. But he makes this special engagement for this one weekend and then he just goes absent again in the years after that. Mm. So this young guy's in front of me, just blowing up in front of me about I'm teaching fathers that think the rite of passage, a one-off rite of passage is going to fix everything. And I just looked at him, and again, I'm in tears, crying. I'm apologising to him that that was not the message I gave, but obviously that was the message that was received. And I suppose the danger in this is if you think a one-off rite of passage is going to fix everything in a son for the rest of his days, you are kidding yourself. It has to begin from the time they're conceived in the womb right through to the day they leave home and then well after that. Uh, I will be fathering until I'm no longer on this planet. Uh, and the, the continued investment of being there and of being available with the goal being to be the best father I can so I answer that first question, am I the beloved son? 
Certainly, do I have what it takes is key in that. But that second question is really only answered effectively if the first primary question is answered powerfully in their hearts. And I just want to be there with them in the journey for when they come back to me. Like areas where, you know, when they come back and they're, they're, they're broken from school and I find that they've been bullied. And I talk to them and say, hey, what's going on, buddy? Nothing. No, no, seriously. Look at you. You are downcast. Something's broken you today. What is it? And then the tears come. So for a son to be able to cry in his dad's arm, but to actually hold a son and embrace him and let his tears stain your shirt, I mean, that's a holy gift to a son right there. Mm. That says something very powerful about how the father wants to receive our tears. And then to say, talk to me, what's happened? Then to hear what was said, what happened. To take him downstairs and to set up a goal net with a soccer ball and say, okay, I want you to tell your heavenly father how you feel about this and strike the ball as hard as you can. You know, and to pull out, you know, like Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, where it talks about how do not let the sun go down in your anger and in your anger, comma, do not sin. So let's, let's be angry. Let's try to sin in this. How do we get this out in a holy way to a holy God, to, to the judge? And, you know, to watch this ball getting smacked hard as he vents to a holy God how he feels about what happened and learning to develop a process for forgiveness and to let go of the resentment and process it all with a dad there holding him and cuddling him as he does it all and coaching him in that. I mean, I don't know about you, man, but I wish I'd have got that when I was younger. Mm. Mm. Paul, I, as you share that, I'm tying it to the idea that you shared also that your six children were each born into very different families, uh, both because mm. of their birth order, because of the time, but then also be because of what God has done in your heart and in Joanne's heart. Um, can you say, I guess what I'd like to hear about is you're describing a lifestyle that may be normal to you, but is quite radical in this day and age, where spending time with their kids and being available for that midnight phone call and stopping everything in the middle of your job to go tend to a son. Those are examples of, of a pretty radical lifestyle for you to say that your first seven disciples are your six children and your wife. And if you're, if you're failing in loving there, then where, where do you have, where have you earned the right to be heard? Those are radical ideas in this world and you put on top of that your temperament and your personality and your gifting as a hard charger and then in a ministry world where there is always more need you know the harvest is many the workers are few so what i'd like to hear from you is like how did those shifts start happening uh, I'm, I'm guessing the paul ryan i'm communicating with today is very different than the paul ryan i would have heard from when Daniel was three years old and thus the needing to have to seek forgiveness from him. What Can you point to a couple shifts and even like practical operational decisions that you made that were courageous in their time um, but you simply have no regrets that now you wish, your only regret is that you could rewind the clock and have today's maturity to be back there with Daniel as you are with Jonathan now. I just saw too many people that I initially wanted to model off who I saw as church leaders who were people that we all aspired to want to be like. But when I, I think we often look, we, we say, oh, there's a spiritual man. 
when I looked at those guys, I thought, yes, yes. Then one guy came into my life. His name was Ken Simington, another friend and core mentor. And he said this to me. He says, I don't know yet. I haven't spoken to his wife. And it kind of opened a doorway to me to think, I've only been looking at what I hear and see them say from the front. I've never actually examined what their home life is like. Mm. And so that took me on a journey of starting to look at these guys more closely. And I realized how they would bring their children to school on Sunday, all dressed very prim and proper. But I started to notice the crushed nature of the wives and the fear in the children's hearts of stepping out of alignment. Mm. I started to realize that things were not all as rosy as they first seemed. And upon closer inspection, often in time, you would see those marriages dissolve. You would see the kids walk away from the faith. And I just it wasn't winning me. I started to realize these guys who looked holy and together were actually very unfathered young men who'd become older men following similar patterns their father had imparted to them, but neither of them knew the father. And now they're teaching me how to, again, be performance-oriented and not know the father. So I kind of thought, hold the phone. Just stop there. That... that that doesn't marry up. I can't live like that anymore. And I suppose the moment Peter Horriban accepted me to go to the UK on the back of all my failures, and he exhales and says, okay, now I know I can trust you. It's like a whole new value system started to develop for me that the guy who owns up to his sin, to the crap, and says, I need help, he's now on the top 1% of warriors that will be developed for the, for the next generation's you know, kingdom front line. Mm. The guys who are still pretending they've got it all together and are accusing everybody else of their sin and standing up there with you know these this, this pretense and these masks on these poses, they're, they're actually double agents behind enemy lines. They are they are trying to paint a picture of the kingdom of God that is a picture painted by the devil. And I started to realise I, I can't live like that anymore. So I just started to make core decisions. This has to come first. Everything I teach comes out of what I learn in my marriage. Everything I teach comes out of what I invest into my sons and what I see happen there. So what I'm imparting when I'm standing up in front of people is coming from where God has healed me, from where God has healed my marriage, from where God has healed my relationship with my sons, where God has helped me learn to invest into my sons. Because now there are other sons out there I need to invest in that I can draw from that kind of power, that kind of experience, that kind of holy, sacred ground that I've learned to walk in to give to those people that come here, both men and women. Friends, it's an honor to have the opportunity to bring Paul Ryan's walk and story um, to the forefront of your life, wherever this podcast finds you today. There's a lot packed in here, and I want to encourage you just to pause before you run off to other things, just to pause and ask God, what is the treasure for today? Father, what is it that you're wanting to call to my attention? What is it out of your care and out of your vast abundance that you are trying to reveal to me today through this conversation with Paul Ryan? How are you wanting to father me what are, where and how are you wanting to shine your light?
Father, I confess that it is only while we are being initiated that we also are initiating the younger men, the younger boys in our story. And so I invite you to continue to cause my heart to be aware of your invitation to initiation in my story. I invite you to continue to illuminate the frontier, the places in me that you are wanting to expose in my parenting, in my marriage, in my friendships, in my work. God, the areas in which you are wanting to show me that you are interested in inviting me into the more. God, more of me belonging to more of you. Me learning who you truly are and what it's like to walk as a son with a father. And out of that abundance, to be able to father those around me in new and supernatural ways. Friends, I entrust this to you and encourage you to go back. There's a lot of wisdom in this, and it'll probably take a couple passes to absorb it all. And if you're really engaged in this subject, obviously it's my passion, and you can find more blogs and podcasts and video teachings on the subject of initiation of the masculine soul at becomegoodsoil.com. Thanks for joining me.